So you wanna watch a movie but you don't know which Choosing the one can be a bitch But Jared and Drew have perfected the art So sit back, relax, and trust the dark It's Dartboard Movie Night What's going on everyone? I'm Drew And I'm Jared And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night The podcast where we put 20 movies on a board Throw a dart at it and let the fates decide This week we are shifting gears massively From the last two weeks with Face Off and Fifth Element To cover another movie that regularly sits At or near the top of the greatest of all time lists It's a movie that's a shamer for me in two ways Both in our usual sense of the word But also in that I just feel guilty for having avoided it it's Steven Spielberg's 1993 film, Schindler's List. Schindler's List. Dude, I love what you said in that intro about how, I mean, this is maybe the least funny film in in human history, but it is funny that how we're arriving to it in the concept of our show after coming fresh off the heels of such goofy films like The Fifth Element, like somewhat recently Kung Fu Hustle, Heathers, all this goofy shit. And then we come to one of the most somber and stern films of all time. Well, and I mean, that's while that's not wrong by any means, this movie wrecked me emotionally, and we'll get to that mm-hmm. for sure. But um, the weirdly, the movie has a lot of points of levity in it as well. Mm. Um, not levity, yeah. but but no, I know, dark, I think I know what you mean. Dark humor that's laced into some of the the scenes yeah. in this movie, and I want to definitely talk about that later. Yeah, I, I I'm looking forward to talking about that too because I picked up on that as well. And let me just throw this in the ring, too, now. It's almost a shamer of mine, too. So just coming clean, I had seen half of this movie, the first half of this movie, before you hit it on the board, uh, back in like high school. So mm-hmm. this is pretty much a shamer of mine as well. And just kind of funny that two of our somewhat co-shamers have been from a director we both love and there are among his most famous works so far so it's just a little bizarre that somehow uh, we both miss et and i pretty much also miss schindler's list yeah well we'll get more into schindler's lit we'll get more into schindler's list and maybe i'll be able to not stumble over that name as we go forward maybe (laughs) Uh, but first let's get into a little board review here yeah Just to recap where we're at currently, I'll read off the board as it sits right now. At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. At number two, Ex Machina. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, The Hateful Eight. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, Tonight's Episode, Schindler's List. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Dirty Harry. Number 17, The Blair Witch Project. Number 18, Waking Life. Number 19, Strange Day. And number 20, The Terminator. The Terminator. You know, Drew, you know it pains me a little to say. Three in a row. Yeah. Three in a row. You can gloat a little bit. The old Andrew Clack. A little lap around the bases. Well, I still hold the record for most in a row, which is four. But I'm creeping up there. We'll see what happens today. But You're threatening to tie the record. The other thing is most of that board is you at this point. Uh, I believe mm. I let me let me count them off real quick and and you can vamp uh, for a second so that I can do that. But yeah. I want to say that you definitely have the most uh, 
movies on the board currently. See, that's fascinating because I would think that that's not possible with the way we do our alternations. But I guess you have you're right. eleven on the board, and I have nine. So I've got I've got an opportunity to kind of close the gap if we keep things lopsided. So if you um, well, it, it can get really lopsided. I mean, when you think about it, like you know, if if I hit three of my movies in a row, like I have, mm-hmm. I'm only putting two on the board in that time. Yeah, that's true. And also, did when you said I have eleven currently, does is that not counting my replacement tonight for Schindler's List? That's not counting that. Yeah, yeah. Schindler's so it'll List be up to twelve on the board. So uh, yeah, it'll yeah. be eight to twelve at that point. In terms oh, of like who's on the board. So, yeah, we've got a nice little ecosystem here with the board and how it'll just, it'll like the universe. It'll lead to a balance, like the planet. It's yeah. going to be great. We're going to yeah. find balance on this board. So I have every faith that I will close the gap. But but the hot streak has to just be acknowledged, man. And and they've been really good movies. And I'm, I am, even though this is going to be a conversation probably very different in tone to some of our previous episodes. I am very much looking forward to talking about this movie tonight. Me too. Me too. Uh, overall, the score is 22 to 15 and a half in favor mm-hmm. of myself. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, not too far ahead, but uh, we'll see if you can close the gap here. Time will tell. Why man. don't you uh, give us a streaming check on this so that uh, yeah. if you have not seen this movie and you started this episode, you know where you can go watch it. Yeah. Strangely enough, man, I could not find this movie free to stream with subscription to any of the major normal services. It's pay to rent a lot of spots, you know, where you would expect to be, whether it's Apple or all those sorts of places, Amazon, pay to rent, a couple of bucks. As mentioned, three in a row for Drew. So this is clearly a Drew Clark pick. And like you said, too, it's a shamer. So let me ask you the shamer question. How did you miss this film and how did it get on the board? Well, as I kind of alluded to in the intro, it's not as much one that I missed as much as it is one that I've avoided. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this movie has such a reputation for being just this devastating work that, you know, will just haunt you. And I think like in a lot of ways, subconscious or conscious, there was a part of me that didn't want to subject myself to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's like kind of my my Maya Copa for the week is just like, mm-hmm. you know, I feel bad that I've avoided this. I feel like some weight to uh, the fact that, you know, I didn't want to experience like, you know, that imagery this, because it, it's, it's so it's it's just such a, you know, heartbreaking thing to watch, you know? Yeah. And yeah. but I think like that's kind of. um that's that's one of the things, especially post, you know, summer of 2020 with George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and, and all the, the murders of, of black people in America by police, um, that that kind of spurred in me like this this guilt of like, you know what, I've like you need to to bear witness to this stuff. You need to like absorb this kind of information and, and be um, willing to, you know. You have not, to not, confront not just the avert dark. your eyes, like you know, like yeah. really accept what what life is for these people, dude. Um, yeah, and I think like that's that's kind of I, I feel bad about that in a way, and I'm glad to have now watched it because, uh, really, like it watching it last night was uh, an a really emotional experience for me. Oh yeah, dude. I mean, I I completely agree, and I think a lot of that. I have a similar thing with why I had never finished the film. 
you know, watching the first half of it as I did in high school, it um, I had gotten beyond the point of the first time we see the girl in the red coat. Mm-hmm. And I think I honestly think it was like at a sleepover and people were passing out. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to stop watching this and just never felt the desire to pick it, pick it up again because it is so brutal and it is such a challenging and depressing film to tackle. So it's, it makes sense why people aren't necessarily drawn like, Hey, want to go see that new Steven Spielberg movie about the Holocaust? Like I get it, but it it also has a little bit of irony in it because in a lot of ways, Steven Spielberg, I believe views it as one of the most important works he's ever done. And it seems to be oh, in, by far to his him, most important. Yeah. He, I think he, he, he cherishes the value of the impact of this film and enshrining this terrible moment in history in a stronger and more stouter concrete, which to him is very important. Like he, well, he notedly did not take a salary for this movie and refuses to take mm, any sort of residuals yeah. from, from uh, DVD sales and whatnot. Yeah. Which is, I didn't know that. That's, he, that's he really, calls it really interesting. Money. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting to, to hear. Um, I just think that it's, it is a little ironic that, People, I think a lot of people probably share your approach to this film and mine to some degree of like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not in the mood to see that. I don't want to see a bunch of people get shot in the face and in ghettos. Like, nah, I'm going to skip it. And it's like a little ironic because I think Spielberg really wants this movie to be seen because it's so important that this is not forgotten or neglected to, to history. And he, he really wants to make sure that the Holocaust does not slip through our fingers and become like a fable. Like he wants it to be not enshrined, but you know what I mean? Never forget that whole thing. Yeah. So it is, it is kind of sadly ironic that it, it, it is a film that viewers don't necessarily pursue uh, due to its difficult nature, but it's a really important one to see. And uh, I'm really glad that I finally got to see it in its entirety. Glad yeah. is an interesting word, but you know what I mean. No, no, absolutely. I, I totally understand what you mean. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have seen it as well, even though the movie made me very sad. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, no, it, it's, it's interesting. The 25th anniversary of this movie, and they, they did a re-release for the 25th anniversary, uh, was 2018, like right after the Charlottesville stuff, and you know this rise of, of kind of. Um, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, you know, movements in, in the U S once again. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Spielberg said in, in one of the interviews I was watching with Lester Holt, uh, he was like, you know, it's more important now than ever, you know, like like for people to watch this stuff, because it's like, you know, it's the, the whole idea of like our, our existence and, and like the, the kind of relative, uh, stability of, of our, you know, experience living in the U S like comparatively to like third world countries and, you know, countries going through civil war and whatnot, like our experience is, is relatively stable and, and, uh, not, not difficult. You know, we don't deal with, you know, the things going on in Iran right now and stuff like that. Um, and we, we get complacent and we get like trapped in this sense of like, oh, it'll always be like this. And like, you know, our, our institutions are strong enough to, to prevent, you know, us from devolving into chaos. And this movie is like a stark reminder of just like how, how much we rest on a knife's edge between, you know, 
these these kind of pitfalls of you know falling into uh, just indulging this kind of rhetoric and and allowing it to to you know propagate and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just like this movie is is so important for people to see. If you haven't seen it and you got to this point in the podcast, please watch it because it's like it is genuinely like. I, I, I can't imagine a more important work than, than this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see a film that explores this idea. Um, also from the, the lens or not also, but instead from a lens of fascism and, and how, how is it that a, a government can become so mad? And, and like proceed with such a barbaric and, and terribly ridiculous idea. This movie is not, is not tackling that. This, this movie is tackling the human cost and exploring the ideas of the endurance of the human spirit and particularly the Jewish spirit, um, but humanity in general. And, you know, I'm glad that it's, it's, it's taking a very personal look into this, uh, this horror. But I would also like to see a, a well-made movie that like talks about the this this the system built around it that allowed for this to happen because that was something I think would be important to see now too. Sort of like how is it that a a, a nation state can get so lost and you know and but anyway that I guess it's kind of a side. No, thing, no, but. no. But I I know exactly what you mean. I think I think this movie is talking about that though um in a lot of ways because it's it's a it's a depiction of like what happens when no one is a check on on these kind of things like it, it reminds me of the there's a uh, a poem or or i don't know i don't know if it's technically a poem but it's written by a, a pastor named martin niemoller i i think it, i don't know how to pronounce it exactly but uh, it's called first they came and it's first mm-hmm. they came for the communists and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. And then they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. It's mm-hmm. it's the slow boil of like, it's like the boil the frog metaphor of like, you know, you put mm-hmm. a frog in a pot of water and set it on the stove. And if you slowly dial the heat up just, you know, slowly enough, they won't realize they're boiling alive until it's too late. It's mm-hmm. that's that's what's happening in this movie. And, I'm you know, like I, I was taking notes because I, I watched this movie and then I immediately turned it back on and started watching it again because mm-hmm. I was like, I need to go back and, and relook at like this this evolution of the movie and early in the movie spielberg is so careful to point out and and zalian steve zalian the the writer of the movie they're so careful to put these scenes in of of the uh you know the jewish people in the ghettos um who are kind of observing like well it can't get any worse than this like they keep that keeps getting repeated and and as audience members even though we know the history and even though we know that it does get worse there's still a part of me that that agrees with them, as insane as that sounds. There's still a part of me that thinks this it can't get worse. Like we've just been people getting mass executions on the street, you know, being thrown out of their house, like teeth being ripped out for the gold. Mm-hmm. Like we've seen all this horror. And even though I know it gets worse, there's a part of me that like it can't get worse mm-hmm. than this. 
it's yeah i i there's a a specific scene that really really caught my attention the second time i was watching the beginning and i only watched the the first half of the movie on the second viewing i haven't seen it a full second <laughs> we've seen time. it the exact same amount then yeah, one and exactly. a half times there you go um but there was a really haunting scene where you know it's the scene where all they're in the ghettos and they're lining up to uh determine who is an essential worker you know versus mm-hmm. not and yeah relatively early on yeah, essential worker meaning a whole new thing to me now, post-2020 as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's fascinating, yeah. But you're talking about like when Ben Kingsley uh, forges that older version of the document and stuff like that? Right, but before that, that same guy that he then, you know, they show him forging the documents for as a metal worker, this other guy gets to the line, uh, to the front of the line, and he's talking to the guy, and the the Nazi official is uh, rejecting him as as an essential worker, and it's because he's a professor of history and literature. Mm-hmm. And the guy is like, well, "What could be more essential than history and literature?" is is kind of what he's saying. Yeah, um, and they're know. trying to eradicate that. Well, sure, but I, I'm just saying, like, like how quickly? To me, it's like that scene is showing the line between unjust civility and chaotic unthinkability it's like mm-hmm. you've got this scene where it's unjust that he is getting not deemed essential um but overall like things have not devolved completely into crystal knocked you know murdering yeah. people in the streets you know level yeah. um and how quickly it goes from you know him being just frustrated by the fact that he's not being deemed essential to literally fleeing for his life you know yeah that yeah. that's like that's what i'm talking about about that just that that resting on yeah. a knife's edge feeling yeah i mean to me um i think a lot of that scene was somewhat touched upon in rafe fine's performance later on in the film when he gives that uh terrifying speech about you know where he's the basically last... talking to himself yeah well you know he's like in the there's the troops are all around him he's oh, like oh. in the center and there's like that SS or whatever that they're standing on. And he, he talks about how some previous German ruler allowed Jews into the country centuries ago and how that, that day, that time is over now. And that's not, that history never happened. It's all just a rumor. So I kind of viewed that sort of um, like the, what is deemed essential was also an assault on learned Absolutely. And educated Jewish people. So, uh, I, and I agree with what you're saying. Time, yeah, it's yeah. both things. Exactly. Like it is sort of a, uh, a, a disrespect, um, towards, uh, what one could deem essential. And then also it's like, there is this crazy idea due to, uh, another thing the film is, I think, tackling, which is the, the problem with having anti-Semitism simmering in a part of the world for centuries and what the moment where it just boils over is you get these kind of crazed ideas that the culture just accepts due to all the indoctrination that's happened over the centuries Mm -hmm. that like you cannot trust an educated Jewish person and all these different things. So it's just uh, this like horrifying um, cauldron that the movie just bubbles up as to what actually happened and just the way the the feeling of hopelessness that the movie instills of as the 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 jaws are tightening in and they're getting relocated and even just in the early stuff the 
the sense of dread, even though we all know where it's going from a historical uh, perspective, is uh, really a remarkable feat. Of you just feel this like, where do you turn to? Where do you yeah. go when just there are people with guns surrounding you, and you have to try to hide under the floorboards or figure out a way? Like, I you love- just get this sense of hopelessness. But again. Uh, not losing hope is such an important element of the film as well, and and maintaining a sense of hope in the face of such um, of such a hopeless position is, I think, one of the most important things the film is saying. Yeah, no, and I love what you said there about like the walls closing in feeling, you know, of mm-hmm. like like the the jaws closing on the the mm-hmm. the Jewish people there. Um, I love that what you said there because. Uh, they they literally visualize that in the movie with them being in these cramped cars and like mm-hmm. tightly packed together. Like you you watch their surroundings, you know, compress as the movie goes on. It's really yeah. fascinating. It gets increasingly claustrophobic from the beginning. The everything is just tightened and tightened and tightened, and and then again, like we have this crazy, a couple of times you know, watching the film, I had that sort of realization of like, this actually happened. Like the movie is so horrifying that sometimes, you know, I would get lost in the reality of it a little bit. And then I would have those stern uh, returns to like recognizing that just like, you know, like when, when Ray Fine's character is like sniping random people from the balcony of his home over, over the concentration camp. Like I had that first reaction. I wrote in my notes, actually, I was like, is this too much? Is this like believable? Uh, which is so absurd to write down when you're watching a movie about the Holocaust. Like, is this really how dark it, like it's dumb. But then I found out after the fact that like they tried to be as factually as possible. I think that actually happened. It absolutely did. And, And he was actually way worse than they even show in the movie. Yeah. And it's just like, um, yeah, again, I, because of the absurdity of the brutality, I think one can be forgived for temporarily letting it drift from their mind that this is, this was a reality. Mm-hmm. And then, but then again, the, the movie pulls you somehow, and I, and I would imagine it differs for each person, but it kept pulling me back into that realization of like, no, this happened, which just kind of amplifies the horrifying nature of everything to, you know, far beyond any any horror fiction film could ever do. Yeah, and it's just like, it, it's such an insane event in human history that, like, I don't blame you for having that that reaction to it. And I mean, it should also be said that, like, it's not the only one of these events to ever happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the Khmer Rouge in, in Cambodia or, like, you know, there, there are evil Is regimes. Is that Pol Pot? Yeah, there are evil yeah. regimes that have just, you know, exterminated life on mass scale throughout history. And it's like, yeah. it's really, really important to know, you know, that this can happen and it's it's real. And like, I, I you know, I think that that reaction is natural because you're like, there. this is so insane that it, yeah. it's unthinkable, you know? It's, 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 it's hard to imagine it happening. And it just because it's so insanely terrible like it's just crazy and again i think it's really important the whole thing about if you go to a holocaust museum or anything like that like that's the message they're always 
saying there, and they're saying many things, but among them and near the top is like, never forget. Like that's the most important, like we cannot forget that this can happen. And if you're not careful, if you don't learn from the fact that this did happen, it could happen again. So you always got to be vigilant to some degree of looking out for when hate speech is simmering or when, when certain ideas are being groomed by a culture that are negative, you got to be on guard about that shit and you got to kind of try to, to see your way through it. Well, we've kind of dug into just, you know, our reactions to this movie a little bit, but I I haven't asked you the question. I mean, overall, what is your, your overall feeling on the movie? I mean, it's, it's, it's great. It's a really, it's a really amazing achievement cinematically. And the way it really pulled me into the reality of the situation is shocking. I think Spielberg directed it beautifully and perfectly. And I can't imagine the weight that was on his soul trying to make this movie. And, but you know, it it would be easy to do a misstep because at the end of the day, for the sanity of these actors, I would think they'd have to snap out of it and be like, whoa, 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 it's just a movie. Like we're just acting here. But they, they, they kind of couldn't escape from due to filming locations and things like that to the reality of their true history. I think that is, plays into the film's strengths in terms of its importance, but must have been incredibly taxing on Spielberg and everyone involved just to be kind of consumed by that. Like, again, that soul, the soul pain of going through that must have been tough. Um, I really only have one gripe and quibble uh, performance issue with the film, but it is a remarkable movie and one that I just really think it's, it's beyond important to Spielberg's career because it's, it's when he kind of started getting taken more seriously as a true filmmaker to some degree in terms of, of well, he was always respected as a true filmmaker, but in terms yeah. of you're talking about just as like a serious, like Oscar contender artist kind of guy. Yeah. Like I think that's one of the things that I just kind of selfishly and beyond what's going on in the film itself at a kind of like a meta level. That's one of the things I appreciate about the film is it, it like, Steven Spielberg is like a true artist, not just a popcorn movie guy, which would be silly to to put that label on him. But I think that people kind of viewed him that way. Well, it's and especially silly considering like looking back, his popcorn stuff is easily some, the best ever done. Oh, know? yeah. And, and but it's I think like it's like it's that is art in and of itself. But I think for sure. But there, there but there is this idea of like, oh, well, Jaws is a great movie. Right. But is it a great worker of art? You know, they were kind of. I feel like there's this it sense took a while of, for that to latch on that idea that that is art. Yeah, exactly. There's this idea that like when a movie is super fun and super entertaining, somehow that limits its artistic and artistic integrity, which is obviously not true, but there was just this idea hanging around. And then I think Steven Spielberg tackled Schindler's list and it is, you know, not special effects laden. It's not about aliens or giant sharks or dinosaurs. It's this human uh, barbaric story and it made everyone I think reevaluate his capabilities as a filmmaker and then he went on to do things like then he went on to do things like Saving Private Ryan and other things like that that were in a kind of a similar serious vein um, so I just think it was important to ha- for him to put you know 
a, a film like that in his resume to to kind of elevate him even higher than he already was. Well, to yeah, I mean, to put some more context in with that, I think it's important to talk about Spielberg's career and where he's at because yeah. you know we covered ET, so we talked about you know how he was how he came to to working on that movie. Um, but to expand more on just like the, the the perception of Spielberg at the time, at the time, you know, he was seen as popcorn fluff, you know, kind of mm-hmm. just uh, a, a director that only knew how to make populist large scale movies like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Close Encounters definitely like garnered him a lot of uh, artistic kudos at the time. Like, I think that was like the closest thing he had. Um, but then he he his way of reacting to that, you know, we mentioned this in the, actually the vertigo episode where Hitchcock kind of stuck to his lane. Spielberg said, no, fuck you. I want to make, you know, a movie that blows your hair back in, in like a dramatic sense, not just in a fun sense. Yeah. Um, which, you know, other thing is to say is how fucking spoiled were mainstream audiences in the late seventies and early eighties that they're calling shit like ET popcorn fluff. But yeah, <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculous side, side thing. But anyway, he, he goes on to do the color purple and empire of the sun in the eighties. And those are kind of his first mm-hmm. two real true dramatic, uh, artistic works that he tried to do. Did you, did you hear about when he was given the script for this, by the way? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess he hurt, um, he was given a version of, or like an early draft of the script on the day after the premiere of E.T. It's actually, and, it was not the script. It was the book. Oh, it was the book. So, so right. how yeah. it worked was uh, Sid Sheinberg, who was the head of Universal at the time and was essentially Spielberg's mentor in the early part of his career. Um, mm-hmm. Sheinberg was the guy who just identified his talent and said, you know, these are the right projects for you and kind of like, had a a real guiding hand in getting him onto like jaws and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but Scheinberg, uh, at the premiere or just after the premiere for ET bought the rights to this movie and sent the, the initial, uh, uh, book, the review, I think they said. That's what it was. Like yes. The New York it, Times Scheinberg or Scheinberg read the book, loved it, and then sent the review to Steven and said, oh, by the way, I bought the rights to this and I want you to make it. Yeah. And Spielberg, I mean, you got to try to imagine if you can. Imagine if you will. Being in his shoes at the time, E.T. comes out, you have a string of, of incredibly successful films under your belt. And he had the wherewithal to recognize that he didn't think he was ready for this story yet. So he, he passed. It takes a lot of, um, I don't even know what that is, restraint or whatever, but to recognize that maybe you're not mature enough to tackle this or whatever. And I'm, I'm kind of putting words on his mouth now, but he did say that he wasn't ready for it at the time um, and he, he wanted to wait on it. That's, that says a lot, I think it it definitely does. I think that that shows a level of humility. Um, yeah, you know, that's that's, the that's in that's, that's in contrast word. to what I was talking about, which is like kind of like a fuck you reaction. I'm going to make you know an Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the difference is that this material was so personal to him. Yeah, as a Jew, um, I think he you know felt that he if if he didn't do justice to that story it would be the biggest shame he could possibly endure, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, it, it's that important to him. So like, I think I, he definitely deserves credit for passing. 
Um, but at the same time, I could see a lot of other filmmakers doing that too. Um, yeah. You know, I think I, what's also interesting about this movie is when, when Spielberg didn't want to make it, Scorsese actually, Martin Scorsese was going yeah. to make it for a long time. And what ended up happening was Spielberg and, and Scorsese in the early 90s decided to switch projects and Scorsese took Cape Fear and, and Spielberg took this. Yeah. Dude, talk about another another stroke of humility, this time on Scorsese's part, because I heard an anecdote that as Marty was beginning to wrestle with how he was going to tackle this subject matter, he realized like this just needs to be told by a Jewish person. Like I can't, you know, yeah. Martin Scorsese's Italian. He's like, I can't, well, he's I can't Catholic do this. Too. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. That great point. Catholic, you know, Italian Catholic. And so he was just, he recognized that like, this is not the best way to tell the story for me to do it. Like this needs to be, this needs to become, this needs to be from the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. I, re I remember Denzel Washington talking about, it's about culture. Like you want the culture to be represented throughout the filmmaking of what you're trying to tackle. So when he pointed to like Martin Scorsese making movies about Italian Americans, like, you know, that's, that's not all the time, obviously, but like that's his cultural background. The other filmmaker that was potentially going to make this movie at one point was Roman Polanski, but he made a similar uh, decision yeah. to Spielberg where he didn't feel like he was ready to tell that story. Um, mm -hmm. He later went on to make The Pianist, which I think is a, a, another jaw-dropping film uh, that everyone should watch. Um, yeah. A lot more intimate of a film than this one, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've seen that as well. But uh, but yeah, brilliant film. But anyway, yeah, I just thought it was interesting that like, you know, and, and he's he's a Jewish filmmaker as well. So, you know, mm -hmm. uh, another one that just felt the weight of that project. Yeah. And I get and I get it. Like if you're you're a filmmaker and you're doing whatever. Oh, this is about Rosemary's baby and this and that. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, I'm going to tackle. This is real. This is the Holocaust. Do I have uh, do I have the tools necessary to even begin to take this? subject into a story form yeah and I, well, I, I get that hesitance i mean i do i but at the same time you know polanski was no stranger to darkness in his films you know you think no about, for sure think about but Chinatown it was town and like just the way that that movie resolves itself like yeah he's, he's not afraid to to show dark shit it's really specific to his culture that mm -hmm. you know and, and i think that's the driver for why they're reticent to to tackle it yeah and again it's a real historical moment obviously like LA, LA had droughts and had water issues back in the day. So there's a foundation of truth with which a film like Chinatown sits on, but it's fiction at the end of the day. Like this is a different matter. We're talking about a, an, a factual genocide. And like, I, oh, so yeah. I get it. Oh, yeah. I get the hesitancy. I also want to, before we move off of Spielberg, I, I wanted to bring up something that I was thinking about last night because, you know, I maintain my, my letterbox rankings of, of a few different directors just because I like to, to know how I rank them. You know, we, in the pre-chat, we were talking a little bit about Park Chan-wook and uh, Decision to Leave. And mm -hmm. that's a filmmaker that both Jared and I have seen all of his films and we, you know, have our hierarchy of them. But I hadn't done a Spielberg ranking on there yet as Ooh. of last night. So I put one together and it was blowing my mind just how many incredible films the guy has made. Yeah. And it made me think like, is Spielberg somehow underrated? Kind of going back to like the, you know, pigeonholed as a, as a blockbuster entertainment focused mm -hmm. filmmaker. 
I think sometimes people forget like just how fucking good he is. Like it's yeah. his his filmography is damn near untouchable for how prolific he is. Like he has some bad films, don't get me wrong, but like I was looking at it and like at least five movies of his, I would call like perfect movies, like mm. would not change a fucking thing. And this is one of them. Yeah. And also we were talking earlier too about diversity in filmmaking in terms of genres and in terms of like how many ideas someone can tackle. Spielberg's another one of those guys. He's, he has tried almost everything. And to your question, I think he is a little underrated. Like, I think when people talk about the Mount Rushmore's and the all-time greats, like, for some ridiculous reason, Spielberg resides at, like, a half point below some others, and I just don't understand it. Like, I think, I think maybe it's because some of his films, and even the great ones, have an element of cheese to them. Obviously not this movie, but maybe. like maybe that's part of it. Well, and I want to be clear, like he, a lot of people peg him as the greatest filmmaker ever. Like a lot of, especially a lot of filmmakers, a lot of filmmakers talk about Spielberg in that way. Like Paul Thomas Anderson's one of them too, where he's just mm -hmm. like this, like the guy, no one has a better sense for where to put the camera than Spielberg. Like he is a prodigy for like, was a prodigy for a reason. He like, you know, just has like this intuitive sense of how to make a film. Um, so I, I don't want to like sound like I'm not saying that, but it's like, it's almost like even if the people are calling him the best ever, it's almost not doing justice to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think you're right. Now let me ask you, you alluded to your top five. Do you want to share your top five? Well, I, yeah, I, can, I can share my top. You said five. five, like perfect films. I'm guessing this is in no, no particular order or is it in order? Oh no, I, I keep them ranked. Oh, um, so I've seen, I've seen 27. That's the other thing. This guy's prolific. 27 fucking movies I've seen of his, and I still haven't seen all of them. Have you seen the Fablemans yet? No, I haven't. It, it's not out in Denver yet. It comes out on Wednesday. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I, I want to check that out. I'm very excited for that movie. I've heard yeah. great things, but, um, I'm going to, I'm going to start, I'm going to start at the bottom and work my way down. All right. So you're starting at five, working your way up. No, to no, one. no. I'm starting at 27. Oh, oh shit. Okay, you're two of the 27 that you've seen. Okay, so you're starting with your bottom feeders. My least favorite is War Horse. I think that movie's actively bad. Never seen uh, it. The Terminal is my number 26. I think that movie's just okay. It's got some I moments, like that but it's, it's not a good movie. Um, I am not a big defender of Hook. I know a lot of people are, but that's my 25. Ready Player One has moments, but it's overall not a great movie in my opinion. Um, I would put Temple of Doom at 23, Amistad at 22. It's misguided. It has moments though. War of the Worlds at 21. We're getting into like good, good movies. Um, you, you're a fan of War of the Worlds? I think that's a really, really good movie. I think the ending is a mess and I think like it, it falls apart, but there are moments of brilliance in that movie. Same thing goes for Lost World. Complete mess of a movie, but I, there are moments that it's, it, it's really fucking brilliant. You know, it's the moment in the last world for me where I'm like, you can trash the movie, but you got to shut the fuck up. And even though it doesn't make sense, the cliff face scene. Oh, it's, it's one of the best action scenes ever made. That's an incredible suspense sequence and action scene. And, and like, you just, you got to shut up. You well, can say the, you can say the movie stinks when it gets off the island and, and there's other problems and some things don't make sense. 
That is a dope scene. I think we've talked about it on the show before, but it's the ratcheting up of the tension over the course of that scene. It's like every yeah. time you think it's gotten to the worst place it's going to go, it gets even worse. You know? Yeah, it's like this movie. <laughs> 100%. But, uh, but, uh, but, uh, in a uh, microcosm, yeah. Yeah, but think of, too, just something like the glass... Julianne Moore and the glass blundering underneath her is just like, that's just, that's just intense, man. So yeah. So that's my number 20. Uh, my number 19 is uh, kingdom of the crystal skull. I actually kind of like that movie. I think it's really fun. Dude, I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm tired of people dragging that movie through the mud. I don't think it's that bad. I've only seen it once and I was like, yeah, it's fine. I was like butters in South park. I thought it was pretty good. Um, number 18, I've got Tintin. Uh, that movie's got some incredible action sequences and is definitely underrated. Um, is that animated? It's the, well, it's, um, it's mocap. So like there's actors on a soundstage, but they're, uh, not in costume. It's all CGI'd over their, their movements, you know, uh, 17 was, uh, the last crusade Indiana Jones, the last crusade. I really like that movie a lot. Um, empire of the sun's my number 16. Never seen it. Really, really good movie that I need to revisit. It's been a long time. Uh, the post number 15, that movie fucking rules. Uh, we're into like masterpiece territory now for me in like 13, 15, 15, <laughs> 15. Uh, wow. Cause I think, I think the post is verging on a masterpiece. I think that movie's incredible. Uh, Lincoln. I adore that movie. Uh, that's my number 14, number 13 bridge of spies. Adore that movie. Uh, really just incredible performances from Hanks and uh, Mark Rylance. Number 12, mm. Artificial Intelligence AI. Uh, such a fucking incredible movie. Close Encounters, number 11. Number 10, West Side Story. Fuck yeah, that movie rules. Number you nine, love it. Minority Report. Number eight, Catch Me If You Can. Uh, number seven, Munich. Uh, that movie is way underrated. Munich is incredible. Raiders Bit of the of Lost a, Ark is my number six. Uh, one thing I'll, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I want to say something about Munich real quick. Kind of a bedfellow of this film. Of Schindler's List, well, it, you know, really yeah. exploring, um, you know, Jewish culture and and uh, the Jewish spark in an interesting way. Well, sorry, what the, was your the ramifications six? of the Holocaust and and anti-Semitism? So yeah, um, number six, I have Raiders of the Lost Ark, perfect movie. Saving Private Ryan, number five, perfect movie. Number four, Jaws, perfect movie. Number three, E.T., perfect movie. Number two, Schindler's List, perfect movie. Number one, Jurassic Park, for perfect movie. Wow. So those are the perfect, that's the perfect stretch. One through six. One through six. Yeah. Not a lot of uh, filmmakers could say that you believe they have six perfect movies at all. Like, you know. I mean, Kubrick is probably the only other one that verges on that. Yeah. For me. And they were friends too, which is cool. Yeah, absolutely. For people who make very different style of of movies. They just had a a ton of respect and love for each other, which I love to see. No, absolutely. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, given a longer career, will be there as well in terms of just like the holy shit. I, I mean, because he, I, we've said it before on the show, like he doesn't have a bad movie. Yeah, there's not a single one that I don't like, honestly. Park Chan Wook's another one. Maybe, so, maybe yeah. Heart Eight. I might not be in love with that film. Yeah. But well, yeah, Park Chan Wook's another one with a great, with a great stretch of films and is still somewhat on that hot streak, depending on who in the show you ask. Um, but, uh, but yeah, man, that's a good. I, I, there's a bunch of those that I haven't seen. I wonder if there's any I've seen that you haven't. But what were the ones that you hadn't seen, or, or uh, like had, any notable ones? Um, Close Encounters is one of my shamers. I've never seen that movie. Great. Um, it'll get on there someday. It's too soon to throw another a third Spielberg up. But he, and and you know earlier you and I were talking about 
a potential new category for putting something on the board, which if whenever we feel like it would be um, a redo. Like I, I got to see it again. I only saw it once. To me, Minority Report is on that list. I'm pretty sure I only saw it once. It was only when it had kind of come out. And maybe I saw it twice, but it has been a long time. And I'm like, I'm jonesing to see that again. And I'd like to discuss it. So that might be one I throw on the board for fun someday down the road. Nice. Yeah, I would love to do that. Obviously, the movie is just must have been a huge drag to make. And it's kind of iconic that Spielberg had to find ways to try to cheer up after filming was done each day because he was just so depressed just given the subject matter of what he was tackling. And again, the locations they're filming. We're not talking like a Santa Monica Pier, like some soundstage. They're literally filming in Auschwitz at these concentration camps, at these ghettos in Poland. Like, so it is, you really can't escape from the historical weight of what you're documenting, what you're covering. So he had a couple of anecdotes for uh, things that he would do to keep sane sort of in the evenings and his time away from set. And one of them, I don't know if you had heard this story, but I loved it, which is he would get a weekly call from Robin Williams. Robin Williams would call him knowing Steven Spielberg's shooting schedule, and he would call him the same time every week, like Polish time, to just cheer him up for like 15 minutes. It would pretty much just do like 15 minutes of stand-up on the phone and just make, just just to cheer him up and to, to break him out of it and keep him sane again, which is just so sweet to hear. And Spielberg told this great anecdote about how the thing with Robin is he would never say goodbye and hang up the phone. He would just hang up after the biggest laugh. And then he would just like call it a call it a call and hop off. The that's phone. amazing. I didn't hear that. Yeah, that's just a that's a beautiful moment. But then the one that is even more germane to me, because Drew is a huge Robin guy. And we covered the birdcage on this show. I like him a lot too, but I would say you're you're the larger fan. The other one is like the inverse of that, which another thing, another way he kept saying is he requested from Larry David, creator of Seinfeld, obviously we all know that, co-creator, episodes of Seinfeld to just watch after shooting and just kind of decompress. And this is way before DVDs or, you know, VHS is even anything like that. And they sent him like well, Betamax. Well, no, VHSs were definitely. Oh, VHSs existed. But the idea of like a TV series being released on VHS was pretty foreign. Sure. Like at the time. And we're talking 92, 93, whatever. Um, so they sent him over like Betamax tapes of episodes of the show. Mm -hmm. And he would just watch those. And I guess a lot of Saturday Night Live as well, just to try to, again, stay sane. And then when like Seinfeld and Larry did that, for, for they also did a joke in their show about Schindler's yeah. List, which is a great episode. But the reason they did that whole joke was because of the Spielberg connection that they felt with him, and they kind of wove it back into their own series, which I thought was great. Have you seen that episode, by the way? I have. That's a classic one for sure. I love that episode. Um, yeah, but I'm glad you one. brought up SNL because the other comedian uh, kind of tangentially related to this movie is Adam Sandler. So Sandler was on SNL at the time and it was right around, I guess, I don't know if it was when they were filming or, or shortly after or what it was, but it was in 93 when he did uh, the Hanukkah song on, on SNL. And mm -hmm. apparently he got a personal phone call from Steven Spielberg, like Spielberg tracked his number down through his agents and whatever. And like, just to like 
be effusive about how funny that song was <laughs> and how much he loved it. So like, it's just, I don't know. I think Spielberg was in a really weird place when this movie was being made. And I think it's, you know, other important context is this movie came out the exact same year as Jurassic Park. And his bargain with the studio was that he would make Jurassic Park if he could do Schindler's List and do it however he wanted, you know, including black and white, which apparently got a lot of pushback at the studio initially. Yeah, we got to talk about that next. We'll definitely but yeah, talk about yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the camera yeah. work and, and all of that. But um, crazy to think he still had to fight for things at that time. My God, hasn't he proven himself? Insane. Insane. But he had filmed Jurassic Park storyboarded the shit out of it came in under schedule we we did a, a test record on on jurassic park <laughs> that we might release at some point just because uh we went real deep into just the, the lore of that movie but he made that he shot that movie handed off uh the oversight of the edit to george lucas and uh went over to to europe to film this movie schindler's mm-hmm. list and he, so he was shooting Schindler's List during the day and then going back to his hotel and having, you know, 1993 Zoom calls essentially with the editing team uh, for Jurassic Park as well as the special effects team overseeing the the CGI dinosaur creation. So mm-hmm. like he was in this period and, and apparently like this schedule, n- number one, just broke him from just a, a workload standpoint. But number two, also... Uh, contributed to him falling into a really deep depression uh, right around, you know, the filming of this movie because this movie was so devastating to film. Like you said, he needed to have Robin Williams cheer him up every week. Um, Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the workload of everything he was doing. I mean, this is like, it's an insane year. And I would argue it's the best single year any filmmaker has ever had for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's that old adage, pain is temporary. You know, film is forever sort of thing. But think about for Steven specifically the stakes are so high with this film in terms of how personal it is for him like we've you've seen heart of darkness right the documentary about mm-hmm. uh apocalypse now yeah we've we've those of us who have seen that documentary it's great but there's some amazing behind the scenes tape recordings of francis ford coppola just like having a nervous breakdown about how big he's failing pretty much. He's having his serious moment of self-doubt, which is always crazy to think about, uh, you know, a director who is, was on such a hot streak, just having a crisis mm-hmm. of like, what the hell am I doing? I have no idea. Like, not to say that film is not personal to Francis Ford Coppola, but think about Steven Spielberg facing the same sort of potentially a similar amount of doubt or just being so worn out, splitting his attention between these movies. But what is at risk is him failing at a story that is so important to him. That is like he had kind of built up this belief. And I think rightfully so that at this point it was the most important movie he had to make. And so he is pouring his heart and soul into this. And again, splitting his time, He's looking at virtual effects footage of Tyrannosaurus Rex footage, and he's just thinking, like, this shit doesn't matter. I'm trying to tell this story now. But somehow still delivering, like, an insanely amazing movie with Jurassic Park, too. Somehow crushes them both. Two movies that are working in completely different tones. Well, as I said before, they're my number one and two of my rankings for him. And, you know, some of the the best movies I've ever seen. So what's the better twosome? Is it that 
which is Schindler's List and Jurassic Park, or Godfather Part Two and the Conversation. I mean, I, I would give the nod to Spielberg there, but that's a tough comparison because I think really the tough. conversation is a masterpiece as well. Yeah. Um, and and I think part two is the best of the Godfathers. But for me personally, I resonate more with the the Spielberg uh, one-two punch. Yeah. 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 I think I would ag- agree. I go rounds with my friend Graham about Godfather part two. I, I really... Do not love that movie as much as everybody else does, but really, um, yeah, I, I just so much prefer the first. I don't know. I just what it's, it's the New York City of films to me. Godfather Part Two. Like every time I go to New York, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be great. Everyone says it's amazing, and I'm like, I don't think I like this place. And then I leave, and then I'm like, well, I got to try New York again. That's mm-hmm. how I feel about Godfather Part Two. Every time I walk away from that movie, I was like, what is everybody talking about? Like it's not as good as the first. And then I'm like, I got to try it again. There must be something wrong with me. So anyway, I agree with you. For me personally, um, this duo is stronger. But hell, man, when you get a great filmmaker making two incredible movies and very different vibes in the same year, that's always so fun. We don't need to go too much deeper into Spielberg. But one thing that I think this movie gets unfairly maligned for is in some ways the Spielberg nature of it, which is that this movie is while devastating and depressing and and hard to watch and all of that. It is also extremely entertaining. And the knock that I've heard before on this movie is that it's a little bit, uh, some people feel that it's not right for a movie that is about this intense and important subject matter to be an, an, you know, an entertaining movie at the same time. What do you think about that as a concept? Because I have some, I have some issues with that. Yeah, I have some issues with that opinion, I should say. Um, when, you, when we boil down what is being said, and I understand kind of what they're going for. They're saying, like, you know, should we be munching on popcorn while we're watching this? Like, well, then, is the argument that the film should be poorly done? That it should not be uh, visually beautiful or should be trying to be the best movie it can? No, no, no. I don't think that's the argument. I think the argument is that you need to, if you're going to show things like this, um, putting in things like Ray Fine saying, I'm fucking freezing, like kind of, you know, funny lines like that, or like, you know, structuring the structure of the you know, fake out scene with the gas chambers where they think they're about to get gassed and they just get a shower. Mm-hmm. Um, like mm-hmm. do, doing things like that that are inherently built for entertainment. Oh yeah, that's that's know? yeah. I I I've heard I fully, people give that give that. Uh, I fully complaint. agree with all the decisions made in this movie in that regard. Like the the whole quote unquote gas chain chamber fake out is putting the audience in the mindset of the people in that situation. It is not done for cheap thrills and for okie dokes it's to we all think as the audience member that that's what's going to happen as the characters do they've heard the rumors they've heard the things swirling around it puts you the moment that the gas does not come in and even when the water was coming down i wasn't trusting it sure i'm thinking i was just toxic somehow like i'm still and you can see the look on their faces as the water like part of it is relief but there also is does appear to be some level of suspicion still in some of the faces that I see. Um, so I, I've, I, I'm, I'm fine with things like that. And t- 
to the other point of things like kind of having these slightly comedic moments with the German military blended in with the darkness. I think that's an important thing towards talking about the ability of evil when it is so viewed and perpetrated on a consistent basis to just become day to day. The banality of evil. Yes. That's how Spielberg put it. And I agree with him that like he wanted to show that like when something goes so is so far gone, it's just another day at the office. Yeah. It, it, when, when you're perpetrating war crimes and it's just like, geez, I can't get this gun to fire. Uh, and that whole scene of like, maybe it's the angle. Like there's a little bit of comedy in there. And when you mentioned dark comedy, that was the scene I was thinking of, For sure. which is, it's also super horrifying. Um, and there's also potentially an argument to be made for the stroke of the divine in that moment too. I think sure. the film might be saying, but like, um, yeah, like I, I, I agree with all those things in the movie and not in the traditional sense of a film needing up and down comedic swells. It's not comedic relief. I don't think that's what the, what the moment is going for in these, in these scenes. I think again, he's making that, that argument that like, if it's just evil in day out, it like eventually it's just going to feel commonplace and yeah. it's just, a, you know, again, another day at the office. So I disagree with that criticism. How do you feel about it? I really like your take there. Um, and I, and I agree with it fully. I think the, the bigger pushback I have on that whole concept is that in some ways to, to me anyway, a movie that is, quote unquote entertaining in this way in terms of like th there are points in this movie that are structured as you know in, in some ways their own it, you know it's what what you would say like a sequence like like an action sequence but not action if that makes mm -hmm. sense yeah um and the way that spielberg is just so good at doing that i mean he he's number one doing it unconsciously just because that's what he does he knows how to to make satisfying film for people to observe and, and take in yeah. but i think my larger pushback on the whole thing is that those moments and those scenes and those sequences they pull you in and in some ways i think the fact that it is quote-unquote entertaining makes the movie more effective and delivers its message more clearly to a wider audience because it's doing that. And I think mm -hmm. that there's power in that. And I think that there's value to that. And, and I'm really, it upsets me that people have this, this take that depressing material, dark material or historical significant, historically significant material that it needs to be this stark stoic observation you know uh, objective observation of, of a historical moment i think that that what that gets in the way of is the power reaching a larger audience and and the yes. power sitting with a larger audience i think that that's really important and and kind of gets lost in that whole thing like it doesn't not all of these films need to be art house dramas that are like hard to parse out and and really challenging to tackle when you watch them yeah and also, let's not forget the value to the human experience, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, of a story told well. Like, a story told to the best of its ability can be unbelievably impactful. You know, it's like, what do you expect these filmmakers to do when they're trying to tackle a difficult, personal, and historical moment? Like, do you expect them to 
just forget all of their instincts and and make a Ken Burns documentary? Like, and I love Ken Burns, but like, what are we talking about? I wanted to say one more thing about Spielberg too before we launch off, but into other topics. But I thought it was really interesting. Um, the Blu-ray I rented had a special feature about like sort of a 25th anniversary conversation with Liam Neeson and and Ben Kingsley and some of the other actors and Spielberg. It was a Q&A after the screening. And Spielberg said something in there that I thought was really fascinating and really self-aware and what I perceive to be a healthy way, which is that like something like two thirds or three fourths through the filming of this movie, he would wake up in sort of a panic and think like, are people going to accept this movie coming from me? Because, and again, this, this film is, is majority shot already at this point. So the train is not going back to the station. Mm-hmm. And he would have these concerns that because of his legacy of films up to this point and how he's perceived culturally, that as the quote unquote popcorn guy, and again, we agree he's been, he was unfairly to some degree branded as that at the time. He was nervous that it would damage the the strength of the story, the fact that it was coming from him. Mm-hmm. And that's why he added that sequence at the very end of the film of the real life survivors, just because he really wanted to make sure it was understood that this was all real. This was not Steven Pilworks DreamWorks sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like and I just thought it was it said something about his uh, perception of himself and how he's perceived. I think mm-hmm. there was like, you know, I, 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 it breaks my heart that he saw it that way. And I, but I understand. And I, I don't know if that part was needed or anything, but uh, I, I just it thought was. it was a really, yeah. You think so? Yeah. Because again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier of like, you watch this stuff and you're like, there's no way that is so insane that that has to be heightened for dramatic effect. And I think that it really hammers home just how real everything was when you end it that way. And also it's a fitting tribute. I mean, at the end of the day, like this movie, you know, is, is a tribute to the 6 million dead as, as he said Mm -hmm. in his Oscar acceptance speech, 21 best director, like um, Mm -hmm. it's for them, you know, and, and that's the way you really highlight them is to actually show the survivors of that. Yeah. And to, and to talk about generations. Yeah. Spawning from that, that sort of moment of mercy. Not even mercy, but courage. Well, speaking of that courage, the guy who has that courage, played by Liam Neeson, Oscar Schindler. How do you feel about Liam Neeson generally? Um, and, and what did you think of him in this movie? I like Liam Neeson a lot. And he's kind of an interesting actor for you and I to talk about because, you know, Drew and I are bo- both in the first half of our 30s and we're of a similar age. And... I kind of got to know Liam Neeson as an action guy, even though I had seen this movie, part of it anyway, half of it in high school, I had been introduced to him from other films before that. So he wasn't and a was, Jedi first to you is what you're saying. No, I think he was a Jedi first to me. <laughs> yeah. Jedi and then movies like Taken mm-hmm. and The Grey. Like that was the Liam Neeson that I had gotten to know. I really like him as an actor. I really like him as a person. I've, I kind of wish he would maybe do more dramatic stuff, but I don't know how much of it's up to him, uh, up to him. I don't know if he just gets pigeonholed as the action guy. And well, just he's definitely leaned into that post post taken, which 
Uh, you know, yeah. we referenced a couple of weeks ago because it's uh, Luke Basson written and, and produced uh, the filmmaker mm-hmm. behind the fifth element. But right. uh, anyway, he yeah, he kind of, I think, stuck to that lane for the last 10 years or so, which is in some ways a little disappointing. I agree with you. I would like to see him do more dramatic stuff again. Yeah. But I mean, again, if it's if it's truly like what he wants to do, then more power to him. I like him as an action star. If it's up to him, I wish he would sprinkle in a couple more drama things here and there. And also, you introduced me to a scene he did in, in I believe, Life's Too Short, which is a Ricky Gervais comedy series from the BBC. Oh, had you never seen that before I showed you? I had never seen that. I still have never seen that show. I've only seen that clip. And he's playing a, an incredibly serious version of himself in this clip that we might link to in the show notes or whatever. And he is so fucking funny. Because he's just playing this very depressing, dark, brooding, fictional version of himself. He's great. He's great. So, Every one of his improvs turns into something about cancer or dying or or death know. or darkness and like yeah. <laughs> and being so opposed to the idea of improv, which is what he's suggesting to practice with Ricky Gervais. But it's hilarious. We were talking. I can't remember what actor we were talking about, but oh, Christian Slater. When we were talking about Heather's, we were talking about how he seems to have an ability to make fun of himself, not mm-hmm. take himself too seriously. Liam Neeson in that one bit showed me that, that like, Oh, he does kind of have a good understanding of who he is. His role these days is sort of an, a, a somber, tragic figure or whatever. And he doesn't take himself too seriously. So I like that. I actually really dig the gray. I think the gray is awesome. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but I actually haven't. I know a lot about it because people, you know, reference it a lot. I feel like, but, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, wilderness movie, but Liam Neeson is really dope in it, I think. And um, so I like him. I like him a lot. And I really thought he was spectacular in this movie. I only have one gripe with the performance, one scene. Mm. But outside of that, for an over three hour film, like everything I thought was perfect, especially when he plays earlier in the film. But we don't like him. Mm-hmm. Like his character really grows in this movie. And for the first half, I'm just like, fuck this guy, man. He does not have the proper motivations. He doesn't give a shit. Like he's just a greedy grub profiting from this terrible situation. Yeah, he's a profiteer. Yeah. But the but his character grows and changes in a way that was surprising to me. And so I like that this character is really complicated. It's not just a rah-rah hero. And yes, he deserves a lot of the honor he gets placed at his grave, his real-life gravestone at the end of the film. But the character is, is very gray. Not, no pun intended. Well, in real gray. life as well, yeah. Yeah. So, like, I, I like the character in terms of how complicated it is. It's not just flip of a switch, just root for him, go, go, go. This is a, this is a difficult person at times to be on the side of. But I think Liam Neeson plays it great. I'd love to hear more of the casting story of how Spielberg chose him. Well, I don't know if you found out because I haven't found any of that shit. But yeah, I um, just to kind of button. I thought Liam Neeson was great in this movie. Mm-hmm. Probably, definitely the best I've ever seen him, and I have always liked him. What did you think of him in, in this movie? I loved him. I, I completely agree with you. I think it's an astounding performance. Um, I think he he fully sells the transformation like you're saying from the the uh, opportunist asshole at the beginning of the movie 
to the uh, guy who's crying because he could have saved more if he had done more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I, that that journey that he takes is it's remarkable. It's a it's a really really brilliant performance, and I think it kind of the the just insane gravitas and power of Rafe finds in this movie in some ways I think overshadows uh Liam Neeson in the public mm. image like I don't hear people talk about Neeson's performance in this as in the same way that I hear people talk about Rafe Fiennes but I think they're on equal footing like they're both totally just brilliant um and we'll get to Rafe Fiennes in a second but going back to what you said as far as like not knowing the casting process I saw one bit that apparently Kevin Costner really wanted to play Oscar Schindler, but but Spielberg was like, no, I'm not, no. Nothing. Thank God. No offense. Also, at one point, Mel Gibson was pretty deep into conversations, which, you know, in hindsight is crazy to think about with the anti-Semitism Dude, in his bullet past. dodged. Bullet dodged. Like, if if this film, because of, like you're saying, the his anti-Semitism would have been tarnished mm-hmm. forever if he was the protagonist. And then the other one that came really close, who was actually apparently uh, involved in some table reads early, like he was that deep into the process with with the movie, was uh, Warren Beatty. Mm. Hmm. But yeah, Yeah, Liam Neeson at the time was a relative unknown, uh, at least in Hollywood. Uh, He's an Irish actor, obviously. And he, his... American Breakout really was 1990s Dark Man, which is a Sam Raimi attempt at a superhero movie before, like pre uh, Spider Man. And that mm-hmm. movie fucking rules. If you've never seen Dark Man, that's a fun, <laughs> fun movie. Uh, but he's he is so absurd and over the top in that movie. I highly recommend anyone check him out in that because it's like you you cannot have a di- more different performance from this movie to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, three <laughs> three years after Dark Man, he's in uh, Schindler's List. I guess he was doing a lot of stage at the time too. Yes, is what I had heard. I didn't hear anything about the casting, but I did hear that he literally like rushed off of a Broadway stage and flew to Poland, and next thing you know, he's in a const- concentration camp doing mm-hmm. a scene. So like, I guess he was a you know pretty somewhat accomplished New York actor at the time. But great choice for this role, like perfect, perfect choice. Just height and size, I think, plays really well for the character because you mm-hmm. like you see. I mean, the guy is so big; he has like a gravitational pull to him of these, mm-hmm. you know, these people like that. That just like they find him intoxicating, and like you buy yeah. why this guy was able to uh, just, you know, schmooze the his way to the top in in this you know society. His charm is fully believable. And and seeing, especially early on, before things really go off the rails, when we see how he gets in bed with the generals and how he gets in, introduces himself to them and, and schmoozes them, like you're saying, and, and charms them, I just buy all of it. Mm-hmm. I buy every step that his character takes on the, along the way. And then I buy it completely when he's uh, making the turn, you know, and mm-hmm. to, to helping them. I buy every, every shift in the character. It's a really, really brilliant yeah. performance. I think the turn really comes at the kind of the extinction event at the ghetto when he's on horseback on the hill. Yeah. I think that's when his character really switches gears. Oh, no, I think it's much later than that. Because oh, you think you, so? Yeah. I mean, I think that's maybe the, the initial spark. And I actually, I heard um, 
when Steve Zalian was breaking the script, when he was like trying to piece it together, because like they had been trying to write this movie and having were having a really hard time, apparently, like a previous writer was. And Zalian took it over and he said like the linchpin for him was the girl in the red coat was in some ways like the rosebud from Citizen Kane of this movie in that it's this unknowable thing, this thing that like seemingly doesn't have a lot of uh, uh, significance on its own, but it is the spark that kind of uh, everything else branches off from. Mm-hmm. Um, so like for, for Neeson's character, seeing that girl is like the initial spark of like, like starting to move in that direction. But I don't see him because he's not, he doesn't do any real like life saving act on his own until he finds out until like you're saying the, the burn pits, uh, towards the end, he finds out from Amon Geth that the, uh, the Jews are all going to be shipped out for extermination in like 30 or 40 days. That yeah. that's the moment he actually makes an act on his own. But up until that point, it's mostly Itzhak Stern, uh, the, the Ben Kingsley character that's driving a lot of the, the positive yeah. things for the, the people. Yeah, that's true to a degree. But I also think of the scenes where he really starts jousting with Ray Fines, like, like jousting in terms of when those two characters first meet each other, by the way, I love that scene. When um, he's coming into the room and don't get up, don't get up. And we see Ray Fiennes sitting there who had no intention of getting up and is staying sitting down and clearly is suspicious of Liam Neeson and this sort of salesman-esque energy that he's walking into the room with. Mm -hmm. But Liam Neeson wins him over and wins his trust and starts trying to use that to nudge Ray finds his character towards improvement, even though I agree he doesn't put his own neck on the line and doesn't actively try to instill policies or make moves on the chessboard to save other people's lives. He does start trying to influence Ray finds towards well, yeah. mercy around that time. Well, no, what I'm saying is that I, I, do, I I'm just saying that it's not a switch flipped. It's a growth yes, no, over the course of the Yeah, movie. no, that's fair. That's all that's I'm fair. saying. Because like there's a big difference between that sort of like trying to manipulate a guy to lessen the impact on these people versus literally saying like putting his neck on the line by pr- making yeah. a fa- a fake factory that uh intentionally is not producing uh, more weapons of war yeah. for for the the you know the German military. Very cool, very cool detail too. By the way, like that great line of dialogue of like, I'll be very unhappy if a single live shell leaves this factory. Mm-hmm. I mean, a little bit, you know, it's the little wins in such a dark story that you got to kind of take. You mentioned Ray Fines about how a lot of times he sort of overshadows the Liam Neeson role a little bit in terms of historically and how it's remembered, not necessarily how we feel about it. How did you feel with Ray Fiennes and how he tackled such a difficult character to believably render on screen? How did you feel about him in general? Well, he, I, I loved his performance in this. He was another relative unknown at the time. Um, I think primarily like a stage actor. I mean, he was only 29 or 30 when they shot this movie. Um, and this was, you know, he really didn't have hardly any film credits before this. So mm-hmm. this was, you know, a guy kind of picked from obscurity by Spielberg and just delivers this this powerhouse performance. He does such a good job of playing the way that this character is both evil to the core 
but also human in the way that he's, you know, he he wants to be seen as cool. I think like this character is so insecure um, and so just baseline evil that he, I don't know, there's just so many levels to, to the type of evil that Rafe Fiennes is portraying in this character. Yeah. You know? So you're saying there's an element of it that is in some bizarre way humane because this character is clearly so insecure and desiring of acceptance and uh or something maybe not acceptance but it's childlike in a way yeah you know yeah um but at the same time it is it is some of the most barbaric and uh, mindless bloodshed ever put to film so like i mean i don't know i i i go i think he's he's doing great in this role in my opinion he's playing it believably and perfectly the problem is for me I have no interest in villains like this. It's not a flaw in the film. This film is based on fact and it sounds like a lot of these elements of who this person really was in real life are true. I just I again the movie's not out to interest me. It's not the, the movie's objective. It's just trying to show a dramatic rendition of what happened. But I just don't find villains like this interesting. So it will never be in the camp for me of like great all-time villainous performances. Because even though you did mention some of those sort of insecurity parts about him, I just don't find the character interesting at all. So you don't find the the scene where uh, he's confronting M. Beth Davids uh, in the basement, like the wine cellar, and he's essentially just monologuing an entire conversation with himself because he's putting words in her mouth. Like you didn't find that scene just utterly compelling as a villain. No. I mean, the only thing that is interesting about that scene to me is what is he going to do? But the only reason we feel that way is because of the barbaric acts that we've seen it. It gives me no introspection or it doesn't make me find the character more interesting at all. It's just, it's, it's a tense scene because we've seen him do that outlandish thing. What is it that you're opposed to, I guess, with, with the character in terms of how it's portrayed? Cause I mean like, no, nothing, nothing about how it's portrayed. It's portrayed perfectly and nothing with how the character is constructed. I just have no interest in villains that are so detestable. And I have such, I have such a inability to attach myself to, like I like gray villains that are complicated and ooh, like what, what I, I get what they're coming from. Like a silly, yeah. silly example is like again, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the character of Thanos in the Marvel <laughs> universe, like, like you, you, you get me drunk enough, you squint through one eye. With terms of resources being at what they are, like I could kind of see their their point. I don't agree with exterminating half the population of the universe, but you can kind of see where they're coming from. I, I got, I have no such connection to this character. Yeah, but the, it seems like an unfair criticism in my my mind. It is uh, because, well, it definitely is. But it I'm is, yeah, like, I'm admitting to it. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm confused. Like, did that somehow take you out of the movie or something? No, because, I mean, no, like, not that's, at all. That is what this person was you know yeah that's that's who that person was and the film is shot shot people with a sniper rifle from his balcony just like they do in the movie 
the 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 film is not out to make this guy Jared Givens' favorite villain in cinematic history. This movie is trying to again engagingly retell a historical moment. And so I'm not saying that's a weakness of the film. I'm just saying with this actual human being who's being portrayed, I just don't find them interesting at all. I find them obviously detestable. And and again, like, um, again, the movie is not trying to be, it's not like, Oh, this is who's a better villain, Harvey or Bardem or Ray Fiennes from Schindler's list. Like, I know that's not what is going on here, well, he but does I'm just make saying a that, lot of best villain lists. Yeah, he does, and like, it just first of all, I think it's it's absurd that he's on those lists. Like, I don't know. I feel like that's like someone saying like that. Who was worse, Hitler or Stalin? It's like you know, those people existed. Like, what are we talking about exactly? Um, I don't know. It's just like to to put him on a best villain of all time list is selling the reality of who this person was a little short. And sure. I don't think Ray finds, I bet he would be uh, disgusted to see his name on a list like that. Because again, I don't think he's going for that. It's he's going for a, he, it, I mean, again, the performance is really strong. He's not doing anything wrong. I just like, I can't get an in with the character to understand them at all. I just yeah. can't. Okay. So for that, for that, it, it like, Again, I, I'm not even really complaining. I'm just saying, uh, I just don't, I don't understand the character. Well, you brought up Javier Bardem in, in No Country for Old Men. I mean, Anton Chigurh is in a lot of ways a similar character. Like, what yeah. It, so, do you not like that villain? That is not based on on truth. You know, that's a fictitious well, sure. character, yeah. and he has this interesting, twisted sense of fate that I do find interesting, even though he is a completely uh, heartless and unrelatable person and incredibly sociopathic in a lot of ways. He does have this bizarre code where he believes in fate and fortune, coin flips and things like that, deciding whether or not someone gets to continue living. He believes in throwing up this barrier between his decision-making that stops it from being, or, or, you know, leaves it to the Lords of chaos as he might view it. You know, we always like the one time, we see him potentially kill someone that's like not aggressively in his way is I think of that scene in no country for old men where Llewellyn Moss's wife played by that great actor. I can't think of her name right now. Um, but it's like after pretty much the end of the film and Llewellyn Moss spoiler alert has been killed and Harvey R. Bardem shows back up at this girl's house and they have this great interchange of like, he like flips the coin and tells her to call it. We as the audience know what that means. And she actually does too. She picks up on it and she just is like, no, I'm not going to call it. Like the coin doesn't have any say, like it's just you making the, de- the decision here. And Harvey Abraham's face in that moment, it kind of like short circuits. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't know how to approach this person who is forcing him to actually make the decision for himself. So he has got a lot of fun wrinkles. Into I will his say character. you, it's interesting you bring up that exact scene because, I mean, the way that the end of that scene happens is that uh, Llewellyn Moss's wife does die. Like he, he, It's heavily assumed. Well, I definitely think that's what happened. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's walking yeah. out and checking his shoes for his shoes, blood. So which like, is his, his go-to yeah. post-murder move. It's like check his feet. Right. So, but, but hold on. Yeah. But that scene is in a lot of ways 
very, very similar to a scene in this movie, or a sequence rather in this movie, which is where uh, Rafe finds and, and Liam Neeson are talking and Neeson is doing the thing where he's trying to nudge him. Uh, yeah, the absolving in a, in a stuff, you mean. Exactly. The power yeah. is in the power to forgive. And yeah. Ray Fiennes tries that out for a second and then goes, no, no, that's yeah. not for me. And I come. Not that, for me. Those two scenes, like No Country Scene and Schindler's List scene, are very similar. That's true. But that not for me scene is like a three minute sequence in the film. And then it's just back to the same old shit. Um, the do the moments I actually do like about the Ray Fiennes performance and the character. And again, I, I like all of the performance are the scenes of him kind of falling in love with Liam Neeson, like at a friendship level and mm-hmm. like getting charmed by him. And they're like drunk together and like Liam Neeson kind of working behind the scenes to start to get the list together. And they have that like, great interchange of talking about what's the value of a human life to you is what Liam Neeson says to Ray Fiennes and then Ray Fiennes like spins it around. He's like, no, no, what's it worth to you? And he like thinks he's, he thinks he's negotiating in business and he is to a degree, but he doesn't recognize how significant this is to Liam Neeson. And so it's just this, like, I like moments like that where he thinks he's won the conversation. He thinks he's outsmarted Liam Neeson, but he hasn't, but he does seem to genuinely like, Oscar Schindler and like he is he is won over by him and so I like seeing his sort of more humane moments there but like things like the Nazis on the hot day outside of the train like cackling and laughing like those things yes of course happened and again I know it's important to Spielberg to show the banality of just day-to-day work being so evil I get Mm -hmm. that but those were some of the scenes that just didn't really work for me to a way, to a degree because it was just like, I don't know. It was like a, a scotch too much. I don't know. I don't know no, what it is. No, but no. Ray Fiennes, I dig. I dig Ray Fiennes. All right. Fair enough. How'd you feel about Ben Kingsley in this movie? God, I loved him. I loved him in this movie. I think it's my favorite Ben Kingsley performance I've ever seen. Really? Wow. I don't think I've seen Gandhi in one swoop. I actually considered based on us watching Schindler's List this week about putting Gandhi on. But like, mm. I think I saw it in high school and I don't really care to see it. I don't really want to watch that, honestly. Why not? I, I think don't it's either. Just but. Like, it, to me, it strikes me as um, Oscar Beatty, you know? Yes. And, and that's, that's the vibe that Perfectly I've gotten said. from people who have, who have seen it, where it's just like, you're just, you're just trying to win awards. This is just a prestige pick, but, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. But I no, mean, I, I, would, I, I would watch it. It's just not one that I'm like, no. yeah, let's definitely watch Gandhi. No, I th- I think it's, I mean, biopics are so hard to pull off. They're always like, you know, Oscar Beatty. Like you look at a movie like Ray, even or anything like that. I'm just like, you try to sum up an entire human being's life in two hours. Like, ugh, it's not going to be good. It's just going to be like, oh, look at this impression this person's doing. Like, I just don't care. Even you can even say to some degree, Lincoln, at least Lincoln takes just a slice of like, you know, whatever it was like last eight months of Abraham Lincoln's life or whatever, but like they did generally don't work out great. Anyway, more to Ben Kingsley. Yeah, I was, I was wowed by him in this. And, and the last Ben Kingsley role I had seen for the first time was sexy beast. Have you ever seen that movie? I think we've talked about it before. Well, yeah. I've never seen it. Um, I've heard yeah. good things though. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have a kind of somewhat complicated relationship to that film, but Ben Kingsley is great in that movie and he is playing in a totally different 
emotional energy and space than this film. I really loved seeing him in this with reserved, quiet, thoughtful, methodical, heroic, strong, but very understated. Mm -hmm. And in that sort of softness of energy, for lack of a better term, I thought it really was a powerful performance. I, I hate, it's like DVD bit back of like a DVD jacket nonsense. You know what I mean? Powerful performance, but it really was like, it's, it's, he's the hero. Anyone with eyes can see that he's really the hero of this film. Mm -hmm. And Oscar Schindler even says as much at the end of the film when he's giving that last speech just after the surrender. So he is the, the, the person that is so easy to root for in this film. And it's nice to have him there because like we said, Oscar Schindler is a complicated character and is, is rather gray. He ends on a very heroic note, but his journey is a gray one. Ben Kingsley is just kind of not that way. And I, I loved him in this. What did you think? I really, really loved him in this. I, I agree with you. It's my favorite performance I've seen of his. Um, it's the quiet, the mm -hmm. quiet moments with him that I'm just taken with. You know, mm. he doesn't get any lines of bombast or like big speeches. He doesn't really, he doesn't have those lines to chew on. It's mm -hmm. all in the face and the way that he's kind of taking in everything and trying to process mm. it. And, you know, um, yeah. you're right. He, I mean, he is the true hero of this movie. The, the rest mm -hmm. of the movie doesn't happen if he doesn't initiate everything. Oh, um, and, yeah. I, and I love the performance. I think when it comes to other Ben Kingsley performances that I really appreciate, my favorites, uh, at least that I've seen, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that I've seen a ton of Ben Kingsley's uh, films, but... I really love him in his two uh, Martin Scorsese collaborations in Shutter Island and Hugo. I think he's brilliant in. You know, I've never seen Hugo. It's a really good movie. I mean, it's a movie I've about the power good. of movies in a lot of ways, which is, you know, that's always uh, fucking catnip for me. Yeah, like Fablemans or like, not that we've seen it yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know how I feel, Drew. I'm not a huge fan of Shutter Island, but I do really like Ben Kingsley in that movie. There's a scene I wanted to give a shout out to in terms of Ben Kingsley's performance specifically. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the few times he shows really blatant emotion beyond fear and concern. Mm -hmm. Like, and there is a lot of that in this scene too, but it's when Oscar Schindler is kind of saying goodbye. And it's when it's clear that Ben Kingsley is going to be sent to Auschwitz is before, right before anyway, I think he does this big reversal and starts they start doing the list together. It's like right mm -hmm. before then. And it's the first time we ever see Ben Kingsley, his character, accept a drink, as far as I can tell. And um, Liam Neeson says something to the along the lines of, um, this will be over eventually. And I'd say we can have a drink then. Ben Kingsley recognizing that the last of his sort of slim chances of surviving are slipping away. He just has a tear rolled down his cheek and decides to accept the drink now. That is one of the most powerful scenes in the film to me. Mm -hmm. And I thought he played it perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. No, it's it's brilliant. Um, and I, I just love the whole sequence of them writing down the names and, you mm -hmm. know, it just... Yeah, that's just, good Spielberg, great. by the way, that that like, you know, I sometimes More. give him a little bit of guff about his, his cheesiness, but that's just good old fashioned like. And, and the fact that they're just doing it off memory, like you see the, the impact these human beings have had on their lives, especially 
even more so Oscars because you would not expect them, especially with where we saw the character start at the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. the way he, which is he was dismissive of his Jewish employees and did not want to accept thank yous and made that one armed person saying thank you and just saw how little it mattered to him. Mm-hmm. You would not think he would remember any of these names. And it just really shows the growth of the character that he's just, again, from the dome rattling off the, all these sign- names of human beings that are significant to him. Yeah. No, it's, it's really great. Yeah. I forgot, Drew, we didn't mention uh, black and white. We talked about how we're going to talk about that choice. That's always yeah. a really serious decision that a filmmaker has to make whenever it's done. You know, whether it's the Coens or Scorsese or whoever. Uh, what did you think of the choice to go black and white? And did you actually find in your research, because I'll just say now I did not, um, if they wrestled with that choice at all or if it was clear to them? Well, I think I mentioned earlier in the show that uh, the studio, in at least parts of the studio, were pushing back on that choice because, you know, it was a movie that they were already terrified uh, would would not make a dime because of what it was. And, and you know, the budget was not super high on this movie. I was actually surprised to find out it was only a $22 million movie because uh, I think it looks a lot bigger than that. But mm-hmm. um, But the studio was worried about profitability and all these things, you know, obviously, like, business bullshit. But I think, you know, the choice Spielberg talked about the choice of black and white as being a little bit more of a a thing of like, well, I don't, I don't know that story in color. I know that in black and white Mm. and, you know, from, from like seeing newsreels and, and, you know, just documentary footage of the time, like it's always in black and white and that's, that's how it, it sits in his brain. But I think, what he's selling short with that is that the choice to do this, I think, is so smart because it communicates scale better. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. The use of black and white versus color, there, there's a, a, I don't know if it's a scientific study or what it is, but I've, I've heard, you know, from other filmmakers talking about the use of black and white that by doing that, by taking the color out of the film, what that does to the viewer's perception of it is because your eyes are not digesting as much information, you know, in terms of like when there's a lot of color on the screen, there's a lot for your eyes to take in and for your brain to process. When you strip the color out of it, you're taking away something that the brain has to focus on and digest, and it allows it to focus on the little details of what's in the frame, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's also to do with the choice of, of lenses and, and the way that this movie is shot entirely in deep focus for the most part. There's no like blurring of the image. You see everything from the front of the, the frame all the way to the back. You see everything and you see every face and you see every pockmark and, and you know, pore and, and, and the detail in these faces. And you see the, the, num- the sheer number of people on the screen. And I think in that way, it emphasizes the whole point of the movie, which is just to behold the scale of this tragedy. Yeah, just the idea of us processing scale better in black and white. I mean, I don't know how how much that was the attempt. I kind of circle back to what you said at the start of this topic of just like, even though he's saying like that's how it looks to him, like black, it, it, he remembers it as black and white because he's only seen video and film of it. I think that also adds a little bit to the film's feeling of authenticity. 
Like, because a lot of us, almost all of us these days, share our experience with the Holocaust alongside Steven Spielberg in terms of it's just footage. We've seen black and white footage of survivors and people arriving at the concentration camps and things like that. I think if this was a movie that he was, it was really important to him that people really understood and took seriously and that this really happened. I think subconsciously or consciously, the choice of going black and white aids in the movie being viewed as a historical document to some degree. Yeah. Um, But in terms of like, you know, the scale of things seeming larger in black and white, I buy that. I mean, I think that's another thing that's a little subconscious, but. I think the other thing is what's interesting about the the battle between color and, and black and white with the studio was that apparently the studio also offered, well, okay, we'll release the movie in black and white, but shoot it on in color so that we can release a color version as well. And Spielberg was like, no, no, we can't do that. And yeah. the reason why you can't do that, and the perfect you know example of this for me is is Mad Max Fury Road which was shot in color, but then they did the black and chrome edition in black and white because, um, you know, George Miller wanted people to be able to see that because he actually like envisioned a lot of it in, in black and white. But the problem with that is that because the movie is shot in color, the lighting and the way that the yeah, frame is constructed is just not the same. When yeah, you when totally you, different. When you build it from the ground up with black black and white involved, you can construct your sequences that way. And that's why these, these scenes have so much visual power. Like I think about the steam engine coming into to Auschwitz and the smoke billowing out of it. And the, you know, all of that detail is just, you, you can't imagine it in color. It doesn't look the same. Yeah. Like that, that smoke doesn't have the power that it does when it's in black and white. When it's in black and white and it's just this, dense black frame behind it and this white gray smoke enveloping everything. It just, it has so much more power. Yeah. And even just the smoke coming through the smokestacks at Auschwitz billowing up and mixing in with the sky, mm-hmm. like all that shit is designed to look a certain way. That's because it's being shot in black and white. You just go and try to quote unquote, like the studio wanted to do also release a color version. No, that's not how any of this works as they say. And, um, glad he stood his ground on that because it's, it's a stupid idea ridiculous it's dumb we should yeah. also shout out here the cinematographer of this film is Yanush Kaminsky who is one of the all-time mm-hmm. greats he's been Steven Spielberg's uh, collaborator from this movie onwards the last movie that Spielberg didn't shoot with uh, Yanush I want to say was Jurassic Park I just I love his work and this is easily my favorite shot film that I've seen of his yeah dude it's it's a beautiful beautiful film and again we see spielberg's knack of when to go handhelds too mm. whenever he wants you to feel the chaos and throw you in the situation yeah he's well, got that's, such a good understanding of when to do that well and that's another interesting thing is uh when it came to blocking this movie and and constructing it beforehand um as opposed to jurassic park which he heavily storyboarded and figured out every shot he wanted beforehand with this he said he wanted it to be completely natural and and just to follow where his eye wanted him to go. That's why you get so many of those handheld shots is like he's just capturing things in the moment and and going with his gut, which is just like, holy shit, that this is his gut, yeah. you know? Yeah. Dude, I also, too, wanted to just give a little shout out to um, some of the sound design. And the one that really got to me was just I've never 
been so terrified in films about the sound of a train whistle. Mm. And I think this movie did such a good job of like instilling the fear of what that sound meant to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it was just terrifying. That sound has never scared me before. Like it did in this movie. Any other last things we want to touch on before we wrap up on Schindler's list? No, man. I think, um, I mean, it's, there's so much that could be said about it. I will just add this last thing. I think even though it's, Three hours and fifteen minutes. The movie does not seem too long. Oh, I did want to show my one my one nitpick of oh, Liam okay. Neeson's sure. performance. We're um, gonna leave this at the end. Yeah, we're gonna leave we're gonna leave wow. bad taste in everybody's mouth. Um, the whole like, I did not really care for the whole. This car would have bought ten more lives. Like this pin. Oh, you didn't like one that? or two. To me, it was a little too much. Um, oh man, I think the movie is, completely earns that. Yeah, I just like I wish I wish I wish that scene somehow was done um quietly between Ben Kingsley and Liam yeah, Neeson. Maybe I the wish staging. they had like I can see that. Like in front of a crowd of people and like it just kind of felt like the the only time I will say in the movie where it seemed like Liam Neeson was on stage. Like that's the type of energy I would expect to see seeing a play live. It didn't really play as real to me on film well, but i will say the moment right before that of him receiving the ring with the hebrew in it really worked for me so that me. was and his face at, at the power of accepting that ring or what it meant was great but the whole the way he's like bending over it is like it's you know i don't know it just seemed well, a little over the top to me maybe the reason it didn't bother me is i was uh battling to even see the screen through the tears that I was shedding after the yeah. scene. So yeah. Oh dude, I cried a lot during this movie. I, I mean, I, I had a full yeah. on just like, like I, I was dry heaving kind of cry. Like yeah. it was, it was, it was a heavy experience and uh, yeah. one that I'll cherish uh, for the rest of my life for sure. Yeah. Really, really glad we covered it. Not exactly a, a jovial banger of an episode, but a super important movie and uh, really glad we got to it. Absolutely. Well, it's your turn to put something on the board. What is going to take Schindler's List spot at number 14? You mentioned you mentioned that you were going to maybe shoot from the hip a little bit on this one. I am. Yeah, I've got a couple of contenders. And it's the first week in a while that nothing has slapped me in the face. Okay. Of my, cho- of my week of contenders. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so I'm kicking some around. I've got some like, yeah, that could maybe, that could maybe. I brought up this filmmaker. I almost put him on weeks ago and went with something else instead. And you know what? I think it's time to swing back to it. Or a shamer. You could do a shamer or a bit of a deep cut. What are you feeling? I, I'm not going to tell you. I, I think, you know, you got to go with your gut on this one. Like you know Spielberg I'm just going to do camera. I'm going to do one last look at the list. You know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go with a shamer. That feels right to me because... Okay. I think if if memory serves, my last two nominations were Pi and Anomalisa, which are kind of on the deep cut side of things. It's like, okay, yeah, I want to do another fun one. And then maybe next week I'll go into the, the other side of the pool. All right. I want to put on The Karate Kid. Oh, wow. Okay. I have never seen this movie. I don't have a ton of confidence that I'm going to like it, but I've, it's a movie I have to see. Yeah. Like it's been referenced my entire life. I'm a, I'm a, it's a total shamer. I'm embarrassed. I haven't seen it and I'm assuming we'll be able to track it down. And oh, for sure. 
after having a couple, uh, I wouldn't say artsy fartsy, but deeper cut films on the board, I wanted to put another fun one. So I, like I think Karate Kid would be a fun conversation. We'll continue to tinker with our balance of the board of deep cuts versus shamers. But I think it was time for me to do a shamer. How do you feel about Karate Kid? I really like that choice. You know, it's it's one that I'm not like, you know, so fired up to watch it. But it's one of those, like you said, that like is so big in pop culture that I feel wrong for not having seen it. So it's a dual shamer. Dual shamer. We haven't had a full-blown dual shamer since E.T. We, Like I said, I saw half of Schindler's List. But uh, this is cool, man. Yeah, I'm into it. I like that choice. All right, so the Karate Sweet. Kid is going on the board at number 14. And one other thing I want to note here, you now have two separate blocks on the board where five numbers in a row are yours. So you've got Might four through eight and 14 through 18. Wow. So I got chunks. You got chunks. So here's what the board looks like now. Number one, you can count on me at number two, Ex Machina. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, The Hateful Eight. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Dirty Harry. Number 17, The Blair Witch Project. Number 18, Waking Life. Number 19, Strange Days and Number... Number 20, The Terminator. Nice, dude. I'm telling you right now, I'm throwing right-handed and I'm aiming for the bull. I want a bull. I think a bull would be fun. That would be. So, all right, I'm going to throw this thing. I'll let you know. Well, Drew, we have an answer. What is the answer? Four. Whoa. I don't know what it is. What's four? Well, first of all, four is one of the original board members. Whoa, which we don't have many of those left, right? No, they are a dying breed. We've got <laughs> uh, a few left on the board we have. Let's see. We have four left on the board right now, and we hit number four. So, Wow. We are doing 1946's film, The Big Sleep. The Big Sleep. A Humphrey been, Bogart classic. This has been a big white whale for me for a few years, dude. I yeah, this is a Jared choice. This is an OG. This is exciting. Yeah, this is uh it's gonna be interesting. It's, this is the first time in a while I feel like that we've gone that deep into film history, right? Yeah. Vertigo is the last older movie I can think of, and that was yeah. color. Yeah, so that and that was 10 episodes ago. So it's been a little while. I mean we're um, due. We're, we're due. I mean, and, and it's also the second Humphrey Bogart movie we're going to have covered on the show after In a Lonely Place. Hell yeah, So, dude. yeah, excited to go back to that well and, and see what's, uh, what's what with the big sleep. And will this be two black and white films in a row? I believe so. Yeah, no, that's pre-color <laughs> for sure. Oh, yeah, 46. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah, we'll get into it next week, but this is like a Paul Thomas Anderson recommendation. So have, have you seen it before? I have not. Okay, cool. So a dual no-see. Always good to hit those and looking forward to it, man. Me as well, sir. 
So we'll cover the big sleep next week on the pod. For now, that's going to do it on our episode for Schindler's List. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Please remember to rate, review, and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show was created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Sorry, Mark. Later.